turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 14. That's where we're going to uh, jump off. Exodus 14. They are at the end of their rope. And what seems to be their end and their death, quite frankly, is really the beginning. It's a new chapter. And what the dead end that they are at is really the way God is leading them out. And here's what's even scary about that is they came to a point where they, destruction is eminent for them. They have the sea on one side and they have the sword on the other side and they are about to die and they have no hope. And here's the challenging thing is guess how they got there. God led them to this point. We ended chapter um, we ended chapter 13 last week. In fact, I guess I should flip there. That probably helped. Chapter 13 by making it clear how let me just read that at the end and then we'll read the first section of 14. So God leads them, incredible, wonderful uh, image of God leading them with a pillar cloud of, of uh, a cloud by day and fire by night. So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that, that was, although that was near. God, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land, land of Egypt, equipped for battle. And they moved on from Sukkoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. Let me continue reading in chapter 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piha-Harath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. Very specific where they're, where they're at here. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, of the people of Israel, they're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egyptians was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt, and the, which with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all the Pharaoh's horses and chariots and the horsemen and his army and overtook the camp, uh, overtook them and camped at the sea by Pirhaharath in front of Baal-Zephon. So Pharaoh drew near and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, 
Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. This passage of Scripture is just a a shocking, incredible story. And uh, just when you think it's all over, and like finally they're free. Finally God has shown his power over all the gods of Egypt, and he has delivered them. He has shown himself to be the God who causes all to be, the God who's in charge of and in control of all of creation, the heavens, the earth, the waters. He controls it all, and he's delivered them with the final plague, let them go. They've plundered Egypt. They're walking out with their pockets full of gold and silver, and they're ready for the journey and for a new life. And then instead of taking the easy route just south of the Mediterranean Sea around um, to the promised land, he takes them that way and then tells them to go south, staying in the land of Egypt and cutting themselves off from the wilderness by the Red Sea. And then they camp there and they wait. And in their waiting, Pharaoh begins to change his mind. I don't know if you've studied um, the effects of you know, death and dealing with death. There's a process of grieving, whether it's death or whether it's whatever. But uh, obviously, Pharaoh had lost his son, and Egyptian, uh, the Egyptians had lost so much. And there's a, there's a process that begins with denial and shock. You're just shocked. You can't believe what's just happened. Whatever the tragedy and the challenge you're dealing with, certainly death is, is probably the, the greatest challenge any of us will deal with. And the, the first natural response is denial and shock. And then there's, then there's kind of a bargaining. God, is there any way to change this? Any way for this to get, get around this? Any way for, and there's kind of a sense, that's where people are making their promises to God. God, I will never, ever do this, or I will be a missionary now, or I'll follow you to the ends of the earth, or whatever. And we start to bargain with God if he would just change the outcome. And then, then that leads to a time of depression. And then usually on the heels of depression becomes a period of anger. You're just really frustrated and mad that things didn't go the way you thought. And that's Pharaoh. And then there comes a time of acceptance. Well, for Pharaoh, he had gone through this process. And now he's back to anger. And he is mad. And he realizes, oh, they got lost. They took a wrong turn. Well, that's too bad for them. What are we thinking letting them go in the first place? Let's go get them. And so he saddles up the most powerful army in the world incredible, powerful army with chariots, with blades sticking out of the wheels and compound bows that are able to pierce through, arrows able to pierce through armor. And he goes after this, after this bunch of slaves who have not been hardened by battle, who could not in any way defend themselves, really, against certainly the Roman army. And he takes his army and, and charges after them. And, and when they get into the flat land, the way that the Egyptians would fight, it, they would just... You could see their army spread out in this giant encompassing wall that would just overtake the opposing uh, forces as they outflank them and they come at the front and then come around and wrap around almost like arms and then take them from the sides and they just consume whoever it is that they're fighting against. And here they are marching chariots, horses, um, coming after the Israelites who have no clue what to do. And what do they do? They begin to immediately be consumed in Fear. 
First thing to understand, there's several principles to get from this and truths for us to take away. But the first thing is that God led them exactly where he wanted them. God led them to exactly where he wanted them. Now, sometimes we get ourselves in bad situations because we we disobey God and we do the wrong thing and we make a mistake. But this isn't one of those circumstances. They did exactly what God told them to do. He led them to this point where there was literally no way out. God sovereignly led them there. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation or that circumstance. It's kind of funny. Immediately, we, uh, we, we would blame um, the devil often. Well, the devil put me in this circumstance. Oh, the devil's after me. Well, the devil, maybe God sovereignly put you in a situation where you have a choice. Am I going to trust God with faith or am I going to be consumed in fear? What surrounded Moses and the Israelites? The sea before them, the mountains behind them, and Pharaoh's army between them. The mountains. It renders the question, who made the sea? Who made the mountains? Who made Pharaoh's army? The sea before them, Pharaoh's hosts behind them, and the mountains around them. C.H. McIntosh said, all of this, be it observed, permitted and ordered by God. Brother Lawrence, he said this, he was a monk and uh, wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God, a really awesome uh, collection of letters. He said, the sorest afflictions never appear, appear intolerable except when we see them in the wrong light. The greatest challenges that we experience, they, they seem intolerable, They're, they never seem intolerable except when we look at them in the wrong light. And clearly, by default, all of us, including the Israelites, we look at everything by default, in the wrong light. Oh, here we go. God led us in the wilderness. Moses led us in the wilderness. Everybody led us to this point of destruction. We're going to die. We have no hope. C.H. Spurgeon, he said this, The Lord will make a way for you where no foot has been before, and that which, like a sea, threatens to drown you shall be a highway for your escape. God had led them to a point where they were exactly where they needed to be. You see, here's the challenge for all of us. Fear and faith, fear and faith cannot dwell in the same heart. Fear and faith can never coexist in the same heart. If we trust God, we need not be afraid. And if we're afraid, we're not trusting God. Fear and faith cannot coexist in the same heart. Bill Bright founded Campus Crusade for Christ. He's got a, uh, there's a biography about his life, Amazing Faith. It's a really good biography. I would encourage you to read it. And in there, he makes it really clear at the beginning of his life and towards the end of his life when he was given, when he found out he had a terminal illness, which, by the way, he praised God for. He was thankful that God had given him a terminal illness because he said, no, my father, my heavenly father would never give me something that wasn't a gift. And so I know that for some reason he's chosen for me to have this and he is he there's a reason why he wants me to have it and i'm just going to trust him and know it's a gift that he's going to use somehow to glorify himself and he said he said through my whole life i've learned that whenever i am confronted with a challenge no matter how big or how small it's an opportunity for faith or for fear simply it and so he learned so early in his life to trust god when he came to the end of his road and, and he would see God come through. So the next time he had a bigger challenge, 
He would just believe by faith somehow God was going to provide a way, and God provided a way. And the next time he had a bigger challenge, he would believe by faith God was going to provide a way, and God would provide a way. And so he learned to trust God with all these things, which is why when he was confronted with the terminal illness, it was easy for him to say, praise God. Because he had learned to walk with God for his whole life that he came to this point, and he knew somehow God is going to use this to glorify himself, and so I'm just going to rest in that and know that God is in control. Our God leads us sometimes to places that seem like there's no way out, and it's exactly where he wants us to be. Now, let me just give you a qualifier on that. Sometimes we get ourselves into situations where we lead ourselves. God says, go this way, and we go that way, and we find ourselves in the dead end. And I just want you to know, God is able to work in those circumstances too. If you find yourself and you're going, you know what, I really made a mistake and I should not have put myself in this situation. Again, repentance and faith. You repent of your sin and then look to God to deliver you however he's going to deliver you and trust him to make a way out. Well, let's move on with the passage. Verse 4, it says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So it goes from God leading them to this point, to this dead end, to now God saying, I will harden. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and he's going to pursue after you, and I'm going to make it abundantly clear to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians that I am the Lord. Second principle for us to think about here is the fact that God will get the glory that he deserves. God is going to get the glory that he deserves, whether we join him in that process and we get to experience that or whether we die in the wilderness with fear and anxiety. It doesn't matter. God is going to get his glory. And that was his plan in the midst of this. The burning question in our lives is often, how can I get myself out of this mess? How can I get out of this mess? Let me ask you a question. When you're in a crisis, is your first thought, how how can I get out of this mess? Or is your first thought, how can God be glorified in the situation that I'm facing? What's the first question you ask? How do I get out of this mess? Or how can God be glorified in this circumstance, in this situation? That's the question that we need to learn to ask. How is God, how can God, how will God be glorified in this Situation. I, I remember uh, probably the, when I'm trying to think of examples in my life where I've had to wrestle through some things, the biggest dead end that I can remember where I just thought, I have no idea how this thing's going to work. Some of you know the story, many of you don't, but uh, was almost a little less than four years ago. Um, Cross Life launched a little over three and a half years ago. We, we started preview services four years, years ago this coming January. And then in, in March, we started our weekly services uh, at Real to Real Movie Theater, just, just less than a mile from here. And that was the beginning of Cross Life. Well, in the midst of that, we had left Mississippi to move back to this area, and we had a house there for sale, and the houses had been moving pretty quick. Well, you know, we go to follow God and be on mission, and our house doesn't sell. Okay, and so we have this house. Now we're a year and a half into this process, and our house still hasn't sold and so really about this time, we were uh, living with my mom and with uh, Clevey, and we were living in their, their bonus room, 
at that point, there were six of us. We were kind of like, you know, we've been doing this, all of us live in a bonus room, six people long enough, we need to get into a house. And so um, we, God provided a way, and we had some, some friend of a friend that had a house that had been for sale for two years, and they said, you know what, you could stay in our house, and we will, um, you know, you can rent it from us, but it's, it still needs to be listed, it's still for sale. And so, uh, if, but, you know, the thing hasn't sold in two years, we thought, surely we can get through, it won't be a problem. And so uh, we move in. And we're there from November all the way to May. And then we find out on Tuesday of this week, and I will never, ever, ever in my life forget these events. On Tuesday, we find out that God has blessed us with Caroline. We've just launched a church. We're two, two months into this church plant, but a little more than that. We are almost a year into having lived here, been living out of suitcases. Our house is still for sale in Mississippi. and We haven't sold it. We're renting a house. And by the way, when the, when the guy that owned the house, when he's talking to me about um, renting it, he's like, well, what could you guys afford? I was like, well, look, I, we need to pay for your gracious to let us stay in this house. But as far as the answer, answer the question, what can we afford? We can't afford anything. We have a savings account, and it's dropping and um, I don't know how this is going to work, but we're just trusting God that somehow we're going to sell that house, be able to buy another house, and there'll be something left there to be able to pull that off. And, um, but we can't afford anything, but obviously you need to charge us something. So, you know, whatever. And we negotiated a rate. He was very gracious on it. But nonetheless, it was, we couldn't afford anything. This was a complete faith venture at this point. The church plant, faith venture. The house situation, faith venture. Crazy. And then to throw it, if, if it's not complicated enough, we're going to have another child. Wonderful. That is great. And then we were so thankful to have that Caroline was going to come in the world. But this was not the timing that I was planning on, all right? I, this was not part of my, my, my plans. And so we had a, another baby, and it was called a church plant that we were trying to foster right now. We didn't need a, another baby to, in the midst. Anyway, so, um, and then on top of that, Janet is more, it was more nauseous than she's ever been with any of our other pregnancies. So she, she's no help in this situation. She's completely sick. And then we find out, so Tuesday, we're going to have a baby. Thursday, the house we're renting is going to sell. Can you be out in 30 days? Like, what do you say to that? No, we can't be out of your house in 30 days. Sure, we can be out. Uh, yeah, um, that's no problem. Yeah, sure. And so we were with some friends, and I'll never forget, one of the, the friends of ours, they turned to us and they said, well, praise the Lord. And I was like, I would, if you were a man, I would hit you. I'm thinking that in my head. I'm thinking, praise the Lord. She goes, well, I'm sure God's going to provide a way. It's going to be exciting to see what God does. And I know that intellectually. I understand that, okay? I preach this stuff. I understand that. But experientially, it just didn't feel that way, okay? And so I'm just, I just cannot believe this. Unbelievable. I'm just thinking, wow, I don't know what to do. And I could not get myself out of the mess. There was no way for me to maneuver, to work a little harder, do it. There was no way. I can't go sell my house in Mississippi. I can't buy a house here. It was just, and I'll just tell you this. So that was uh, the end of May. Well, June or July, July 3rd, we at 10 a.m. signed a contract on a house here that was a foreclosure that God provided in the perfect timing, perfect house for us to be able to buy that was affordable. We were at our loan capacity of like uh, whatever that you're, if it's 50%, we were at 49. I mean, it was like, if it was $5 more, you couldn't buy this house. They would not grant us the, not that we could pay for both two houses, but, you know, we're church planning. We got two homes. I mean, we got a vacation home, a winter home. It's really easy. This church planning stuff, so easy. It's really great. It's a great retirement plan. So here we are. We own two houses for a little bit. So 10 a.m., we sign a contract to close on the house that we're about to move in. That's a whole other story. And then at 10 p.m., somebody had looked at our house. They offered us a contract on our house in Mississippi. And so within a month, we were able to buy a house. We sold our house, 
God provided a way. And in the midst of that, I remember having lunch with a church planner friend, and he was like, how are you doing through all this? And I'm thinking, well, not very good. Not very good. I just need a buddy to vent with. I'm just kind of venting. You know, man, this is so frustrating. Man, this is crisis. Right? And I, all I could do is laugh through the whole thing. I mean, I just, the more I would think about it, I would just start laughing because I would just think, I, what else do I think? What else do you do? I could cry or I could laugh. But I just knew, you know what? I've just got to trust God with the next step and the next step and the next step. And so we just stayed in the word, continued praying. And we just trusted God. Meanwhile, Janet's another room thrown up and kids are just it was great and so but God provided a way and in looking back and looking I go wow I don't know how that all went down the way it did and to this moment I'm really not sure that how we survived it and I you know I don't know if we're back to health in the whole thing but nonetheless um, we got a house we sold a house we got another kid it's everything worked out and God has continued to grow cross life and God has been sovereign and God has shown that I don't need your help. I don't need your help. And instead of me saying, how can I get myself out of this mess? I, all I need to say is, God, how do you want to be glorified in the situation that I am facing? Hudson Taylor, famous missionary to China, inland China, he said this, I know he tries me only to increase my faith. And that is all in love. I know he tries me in other words, God tests us. He never tests us to challenge us. He always tests us or tries us. God doesn't tempt anyone and doesn't lead anyone into sin. But when he allows trials and temptation challenges to come into our life or even causes them, it's to test and grow our faith and reveal where our faith is. And it is all in love. But then he goes on to say this. Well, let me read the full quote. I know he tries me only to increase my faith. That is all in love. Well, if he is glorified, I am content. Could you say that in your life? He is glorified. You know, the only thing that really matters in the end of all of this, he's glorified. I'm good. We might die. We might end up living out of our van. We might have to camp out in somebody's woods. We might have to whatever. It doesn't, but regardless, as long as he is glorified, good because the win is the glory of god the bottom line is god will receive the glory he deserves and so it is far wiser for us to lean into that and trust god and and know he's going to be glorified and just rest in that reality fear and faith again cannot dwell in the same heart well the third thing is to know that in the midst of this the enemy doesn't give up easy the enemy does not give up easy it says in verse 10 when pharaoh Drew near. I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. It says that um, when the king of Egypt told, was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants were changed toward them. And he thought, what is it they have done? That we may, what, what have we done that we've let them go away and um, leave us, not serve us anymore? So he made ready his chariot, took his army with him, took 600 chosen chariots and other chariots of Egypt and officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Know that the enemy doesn't give up easy. The devil, just like Pharaoh, has been defeated and plundered by the cross. In the same way that Pharaoh had been defeated and had been plundered by the Passover that had brought about the death of the firstborn of all of the sons of, of, and animals of 
of Egypt in the same way that through the blood of the Lamb, the Israelites were preserved, the devil has been defeated and conquered through the cross. But he has not given up. And until he is drowned in the lake of fire at his final demise, he will continue to fight to take as many people down with him as he can, in the same way that Pharaoh would not stop until his soldiers were drowned in the Red Sea. He will continue to fight. He doesn't give up easy. C.H. Spurgeon said, The great tyrant has not forgotten you, and he designs your capture and re-enslavement. The devil doesn't mind. He doesn't want you to follow Christ, and he certainly doesn't want you to be saved and to go to heaven. But if you give your life to Christ, He shifts his game plan. And the next thing is to keep you defeated, to recapture you, to bring you back into uh, slavery and bondage and captivity. And he can't keep you out of heaven, but he can certainly keep you from being uh, no eternal good in this world. And so he wants to defeat you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your testimony. He wants to destroy your life. The thief comes to kill and to steal and to destroy. And so that's why even as a church, we're saying, you know what? He's trying to destroy families. He's trying to destroy lives. How can we come beside and fight against the enemy that many people would come to Christ? Many people would follow Jesus. So let's live missionally and let's get out of the building and start going after the highways and the byways and trying to reach people in the community. Let's equip parents to disciple their own kids so that we can trust that God will continue to work in the generations to come. Let's do some things differently because if we just fold and say, well, we're saved, we're good, let's just go to heaven. Then when we baptize people... Why don't we just hold them under and send them to glory? Which I get to, we have a baptism service coming up. So if anybody, I mean, you think about it. Why don't we just hold them? If heaven's really better, and that's really the goal is really that we all would go to heaven. Why don't we just send people there? Because it'd be a whole lot easier. Well, because God has a purpose for you here. God has a purpose. God has a purpose for your life. And so the enemy's goal is to keep you distracted and defeated and living in fear and to be no heavenly good. And so the challenge is to know that we got to understand that the enemy doesn't give up. James chapter 4, verse 7 through 8 says, Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And I love 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour Seeking to devour you, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's people all over the world right now that are suffering far worse than we can imagine. And the enemy is pursuing them and is trying to devour them. And and your crisis and your struggle and your difficulty in trusting God is not unique to you. There's people all over fighting their own battles. Okay, everybody's struggling. Everybody's trying to find a way and trying to trust God and fighting between fear and faith constantly in our lives. And so that's not common just with you. That's with all of us. So understand you're being attacked. Resist the devil and he will flee. He Look, he's an enemy trying to, seeking to devour you. So resist him, firm in your faith. And after you have suffered for a little while, uh-oh, you might suffer. Yeah, after you suffer for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal Glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. He's going to be glorified. And if you will just trust him, understand 
that it might not be in this lifetime, and it might be in this lifetime. We don't know, but understand this, that He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Just trust God. Trust God. Now, when we are being pursued by the enemy, it leads us to a challenge, and that is to cry out to God. It brings us to a a natural response, and that is hopefully not to turn inward and be fearful, but to turn upward. The way out is up. Pray. Cry out to God. You think about your first reaction as a as a child, or maybe with your children when they're wrong. What what do they do? You know, they come to mom and dad. So and so's picking on me. So and so's doing this. So and so's doing that. And by default, immediately their knee jerk response is to come to mom and dad to get help. Now, obviously, as they get older, they start to sometimes manipulate that and do other things, whatever. But but what if we like childhood, uh, childlike faith? If we in being confronted with Whatever challenges and tribulations in our lives, our knee-jerk reaction was to go to the Father and to just trust God and to just talk to Him. That's what He's calling us to do. It says that when he, Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were, ma- were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done bringing us out to Egypt? Is it not? Did we not tell you, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Boy, how fickle we are to want to go back to bondage when God wants to deliver us and give us a life of freedom. Cry out to God. Fear, lives, fear leads to compromise and back into bondage. Understand this. There's a simple principle, John 8, Jesus says, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. You know that passage, right? When you know the truth, the truth will set you free. This is such a vital kingdom principle to ingest, to remember, to have before you all the time. Uh, when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. So let's flip that around. Truth brings freedom, so therefore lies bring Bondage. Let's say it again. Lies bring. Truth brings. What is fear? Fear is a lie. It is a wrong belief in God. God's not good enough. God's not great enough. God's not glorious enough. God's not gracious enough. God's not in control. God doesn't know what he's doing. God doesn't know. He's not strong enough to to deliver me, or he's not gracious enough to to overcome my sin and my foolishness, or he's not this, or he's not that, or he's not that. And that leads to bondage. We shackle ourselves with lies we believe about God, and that puts us in bondage. And the way to break that is to meditate and chew on the truth, and the way to the truth is through the Word and is through prayer. As we begin to pray about these things and trust them to God, we begin to see the way out. If you will read through the Psalms, you will find again and again and again, psalmists very honestly, incredible raw honesty, confessing there is no way out. God, where are you? Where are you? I cry out to you day and night, and you're not there. You don't come through. You don't deliver me. Where are you? What is going on? What is it? And then it goes on, and suddenly there's always a change in the tone. And as they pray in their honesty, they go, but God, I know that you are my shield. You're my refuge. I know as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied 
when I awake with your likeness. I, this, this challenge might bring me to my, des, de, to my demise, but I know that somehow you are going to deliver and you're going to work this out in one way or another. Even if I die, I'm going to behold your faith and righteousness. I'm going to be changed to your likeness. So I'm just going to, we need some believers that have some gutsy faith. We need some believers that have some gutsy faith, not some, God, I'll serve you if you deliver me in these, this way kind of faith. Not this, God, I will barter with you and I'll work. If you will do this, if you'll forgive this, if you'll heal this, if you'll fix this, if you'll provide this. And we have this list of things that we want. And God is really not God if he doesn't do things that we, the way that we think he should do it, right? But if we would be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we would get in the face of um, evil and fear and temptation, when, it's, when, when the evil king, whatever the circumstances of life says, bow down and worship this golden altar, we will say, I will not bow down and worship your golden altar. Well, then you're going to be killed. God is more than capable to deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I'm not going to bow down to your golden idol. And that was the heart of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They say, look, God can deliver me. But even if he chooses not to deliver for his sovereign plan, it doesn't diminish his glory. He's going to get glory one way or another. And so if part of his plan, hello, John the Baptist, finds himself in prison, begins to be disillusioned, he doesn't understand. He's the way shower for the Messiah. He's pointed the way. He's, he's the one who sees Jesus coming. And in fact, he's in utero, leaps in his mother's womb uh, when he is around Jesus, who's in his mother's womb, recognizing he's the Messiah. Then he's baptizing people to Jordan, sees Jesus coming from a distance. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He of all the world, he had more clarity in who Jesus was and his purpose and why he was here. But he thought Jesus was going to come to conquer. He thought that the Messiah coming, part of his trip was going to be the conquering. He didn't realize that's a second trip. And he didn't realize he's going to suffer first and then come and conquer next. And so he didn't understand why things weren't unfolding the way that he thought they were supposed to unfold. And so he sends his servants to Jesus to ask the question, are you the anointed one or should we look for another? Are you the deliverer or should we be looking for another one? Because it just didn't add up. And Jesus' response to him was simply, the deaf hear, the blind see, the uh, lame walk. In other words, according to Isaiah chapter 61, everything is unfolding exactly how it's supposed to. Fear not. Fear not, John the Baptist. It's It's going great. Just hang in there. And days later... John the Baptist's head is removed from his body and he is killed because he was a prophetic voice against evil and sin. And he was killed. And understand, God was as glorified in John the Baptist's life as he was in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when he met them in the furnace and delivered delivered them from the fire. We don't know God's plan. We don't know why God does what he wants, but we know he is going to get glory and we need to have a gutsy faith that says, God will deliver me. And even if he chooses not to, I'm not going to bow down to fear. I'm not going to doubt. I know that God has a way. I listened to a, I was talking to a gentleman in our, in our church this week that was just struggling with sickness in their family. And, uh, and he was just saying, um, you know, I, I don't know how, um, you know, my wife is going to, how God's going to do this. I just don't know 
what's going on here, but I haven't lost my faith yet. He kept saying that, and he was making it clear. He said, you know, I, God might choose to take her. I don't know what he's doing, but I haven't, lose, I haven't lost my faith. And he almost was apologetic saying that because I think he felt like he had believed and he had heard the lie so many times in churches that if we believe enough, God will do things the way we think he's supposed to do it. And if he doesn't come through and deliver somebody the way we think he's supposed to, then it must be our problem and we just didn't have enough faith. Some of you maybe are dealing with the wounds and the hurts of a wrong belief about God. And there's a little bit of doubt there in your trust in God because you know there's been times in the past where you believed God and he didn't deliver the way you thought he was going to. And so that begins to create a crisis, and we begin to start asking questions. Maybe God's really not real. Maybe he really doesn't answer prayer. Maybe he doesn't. And instead of going, you know what? God is not controlled by me to do what I want, but I know I can trust that he has a way, and he has a purpose, and his ways are always best. The bottom line is we fight through these things. We fight through the doubts. We fight through the challenges through prayer. We fight through it by trusting by God, by crying out to God, and knowing that he is going to to make a way. And so uh, there's a challenge Moses gives them at this point. And it's just three, three commands to think about in the midst of your prayer. In the midst of your prayer, he says in verse 13, Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, number two, and see the salvation of the Lord. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you. Today, For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will not see tomorrow. You will never see them again. And the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. All you got to do is just be quiet and stand still. Three points he gives them. Stay calm, stay confident, and watch God at work. This is not a self-confidence. This is not a self, um, a peace that we derive by our own self. Staying calm calm means fearing not that means trusting in god Fear not god is on your side and then being confident is merely standing firm or or even some translations call it standing still or translate stand still for you cannot win the battle in your own strength this is not a battle that you can fight so you just need to trust god stay calm and just baby steps of faith (laughs) just trust god somehow he's going to work it out somebody's going to work and then stand firm and then watch god Work, see the salvation of the Lord, for he will fight for you. It's important that we stand still before we go forward. Sometimes we just need to stand still before we go forward, trusting God and waiting upon him. For unless we are standing by faith, we can never walk by faith. Unless we're standing by faith, we can't walk by faith. Moses lifted up his rod and God began to work. And so... uh, he says in verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. God fights more effectively. Understand this. God fights more effectively when we stop trying to give him advice. And when we stop trying to be self-sufficient. God fights far more effectively when we stop trying to give him advice. We're just silent. And we stop trying to be self-sufficient, trying to manage our way out of the Take your hands off of it, back away from the table, and let God work. Stand firm. Stand silent. Uh, be confident and watch God work. Last couple points here. Keep moving forward. 
Keep moving forward. Verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Why are you still praying? Look, I'm providing a way. Go forward. And so now they can't see it because there's still a sea there in front of them. And he says, lift up your your, uh, staff, Moses, and start moving in that direction. And so they begin moving in that direction. They take the first step, and then God reveals the next and the next and the next. Before you know it, the sea has parted. And there is dry land, and they begin to walk through on their deliverance to the other side. The Lord said, why do you cry to me? Tell the people to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the people of Israel may go, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen. And all the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. His power will never conquer my people. Keep moving forward. The the Bible illustrates God's will as a lamp, not as a flashlight, okay, not as the sun for that matter. It's, It's just a lamp. Lamp God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And a lamp, we understand, only illuminates the next step. And often, most often, we want to know the complete path. And God wants you to just be mature, uh, to grow in your maturity by obeying the last thing he told you. And often, we, we don't want to obey the last thing. And so we're in disobedience, refusing to take the next step because we want to see all of the steps. And we are just disobedient. And so we sit back and we learn more. We go to more Bible studies. We get more information. We get more uh, sermons, more podcasts, more whatever. Through all that process, we think that the gaining of knowledge is the way to maturity. And the way to maturity is just obeying the last thing God told us to do. Just take the next step. And then then take the next step. (laughs) Take the next step. Just obey God. What did he tell you to do? Go back to that. Some of you, the last thing God told you to do might have been years ago. And we've been trying to do it on our own for so long and giving God advice for so long that we've even forgotten. And maybe the the application for you today is just to get along with God and say, okay, God, what is the last thing you told me to do that I didn't do? How do I go back to that? God's word is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet. Go back to what he's told you to do and then start moving forward from that place. Keep moving forward. And that is the path to maturity and growth in the Christian life. Learn to practice the presence of God. I love this. It says that the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood uh, behind them, coming between the host of of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and there was darkness. And it lit up the night. This is in the middle of the night. This is like 2 to 4 a.m. that this is all transpiring, by the way. Um, It lit up the night without one coming near the other. All night. So what was darkness for the Egyptians was light for the Israelites. And God, who was before them, is now behind them, and he has encompassed them. He goes before them, he goes behind them, and he leads them through their salvation to the other side of the Red Sea. Practice the presence of God. Understand that God is far less concerned with you getting from point A to point B and more concerned with you learning how to rest in him and walk with him and to practice his presence as he leads you. Some incredible books been written by people dead. Most of the great books are written by people that are dead now. The newer books aren't as good because people are still alive and we haven't seen enough time to test whether they're really worth reading or not. But that Brother Lawrence I mentioned to you before, he wrote a book called Practicing 
the presence of God. And there's a guy by the name of Henry Skugel who wrote a book called um, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And both of these guys had just this incredible understanding. And by the way, God used Skugel's book to bring the Wesleys to salvation and many others that sparked revivals in uh, England and in North America. And in all of it traces back to reading uh, God using Henry Skugel's The Life of God and the Soul of Man in the lives of these different people. And it was just this simple concept of stop faking it and trying to be a professional Christian and rest. Stop going through the motions and rest in God and walk with God and allow Him to be real in your life. Practice the presence of God. Keep moving forward. Learn to practice the presence of God. And then the last two points. We know that the Egyptians, shortly after this, the Israelites get to the other side, the water encompasses them, and the Egyptians who had drowned Israel's infant sons, the future strength of their nation now is watching as their present strength of their nation is drowned in the Red Sea. The waters return, covered the chariots and the horsemen, verse 28, and the host of Pharaoh, and had followed them into, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, and the waters being a wall to them on the right and on the left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that, that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So that the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Last thought. Today's deliverance should build for tomorrow's faith, to build the faith for tomorrow. What, what has God taught you recently that you need to remember? In fact, if you're in a crisis right now and you're struggling, I, I would say, look, go backwards. It's okay. What has God, most importantly, taught me in his word? And then secondly, what have I learned as I've experienced God's deliverance and God's provisions and God's hope and God bringing about the way where there was no other way? in my own life. And whatever little steps of faith that you've experienced, however far back and however small, that is a building block for the next challenge that's going to be a little bigger. And then the next challenge could be a little bigger. And then the next challenge that's going to be a little bigger. Because God's not going to allow something to come about in your life that He has not given you the grace and that He is not able to bring you through and giving you the grace to be able to endure. And so understand that today's deliverance should be a faith builder for the future. The next chapter, we're not going to go through. I'm going to wrap it up right now. The next chapter is the Song of Moses, and it is a result. When God works and when God moves, the natural response is worship. The natural response is worship, to worship God with a new song, not with an old song, but with a new song of what he's done. And so he writes a song to express, and it's a beautiful Hebrew poetry, which is not rhythmic and rhyming, but Hebrew poetry, one statement will be made, and then the next statement backs it up and rewards it another way. And then another statement, and it's rewarded another way. And then the next statement, and it's rewarded. So I would encourage you to read through that and rest in that and, uh, and think about and ponder that later, maybe in your families, as you think about what God has done. But understand that God in His deliverance should lead us to worship. Because again, God is going to get His glory. We just need to rest in that. Every challenge that you're going to deal with from this day forward is going to be an opportunity for faith or for fear, for faith or for fear. And the first step for all of us is, have you repented of your sins? 
and trusted in Christ. And if you've never done that, then how can you lead? How can you expect for God to lead you if you've never followed him in the point of salvation? And if you are saved, that same way that you became a follower of Christ is the way you grow as a follower of Christ. You continue to repent of the fear and the anxiety and the worry and the lack of faith and the the advice you're giving God and the way that you think it should go. And you repent of those things and you trust God. Repent of that and you trust God. Put your faith back in God, knowing he has a way, knowing he will provide, knowing he will lead, knowing he will guide. 